My name is Sam McNair. I'm a junior biological sciences and religious studies double major here at MU. I'm also a pre-med student. Um, I'm also a Veritas small group leader to some cool freshman guys. And uh, I'm the person that's fortunate enough to be able to speak to you all for a couple minutes here tonight. So uh, there's this kind of tradition when people give Veritas talks. They, they like to show a picture of their spouse and, and of their family. And, uh, you know, that's nice and all. But uh, as you might assume, I'm not quite at that point in my life yet. I, I'm not married. I don't have any kids. So I figured I'd show a couple pictures of my dog, Wallace. Um, <laughs> He's, he's really precious. He's a bloodhound. Um, so there's, there's one. And this is Captain Wallace uh, of the SS Bloodhound. It's, it's really great. Um, so yeah, uh, so I tried to figure out a, a segue from, from Wallace to the gospel. Um, I fell short in my attempt. So it's, it's pretty hard to do. So uh, in lieu of a really great transition, uh, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, uh, I thank you for allowing us to come here tonight and, and open up your word. I pray that we'd be receptive to, to hear what you have to say to us, Lord. We love you. Yeah, I pray. Amen. So we're currently in a sermon series in the book of Proverbs called The Art of Living Well. We've heard thus far about the, the art of trusting, the art of seeking, the art of working. Tonight, I, I want to look at what Proverbs has to say about the art of friendship. As I was, as I was preparing for this talk, I, I had to rattle through my mind what, what makes a good sermon a good sermon. Uh, I, I went back and remembered all, all the sermons that I have up in my stores here, and I found one common trait, a trait story. A good narrative really just pulls me in. And so I wanted to start tonight with a story. I was listening to a podcast the other day, and I, I get how pretentious that sounds. Uh, I was listening to a podcast in my ivory tower here at Mizzou, but I was listening to a podcast the other day about the American dream and, and poverty myths. It was, it was really good. It, it told the story of this woman named Margaret Smith. Margaret is a, a single mother of six uh, living out of Columbus, Ohio, and she recently became homeless after she was evicted from her apartment in low-income housing. So she, she must not have paid her rent, right? Well, that's just not the case. Margaret was evicted from her property because uh, her, sh- her son was shot on her property. It, it wasn't because she couldn't pay her rent. It wasn't because she was a bad tenant. Margaret was evicted because her son was shot on her property. An ex-girlfriend of Margaret's oldest son came back to their place and shot her son six times on their front lawn. Margaret's oldest daughter went and grabbed a blanket and pressed it up against his neck to stop the bleeding. Margaret's 11-year-old son grabbed some pillows off the couch to to elevate his head. All during this time, Margaret is, is laying with her son, saying, stay with me, stay with me. As the ambulance came and rushed into the ICU, uh, her son was battling for his life. And and while she was there, she received an eviction notice from her landlord. Because she was evicted from her her property because there was a crime committed on her property. She, She was the victim of a violent crime, and she had to bear the punishment of breaking her lease. Margaret had had her lawyers look into it to no avail. She was homeless. As her son lay in the ICU, she, she moves herself and her five kids out of her apartment and, and into a homeless shelter. 
Margaret being the mother that she is. She, she didn't want her kids to experience homelessness, so she split up her kids into to five different places across the city with her, with her uncles, with her cousins. Not only this, she, she loses her job as a customer rep during the time it takes for her to take care of her son. So just over the course of just a few weeks, Margaret goes from housed to, to homeless. She goes from employed to, to unemployed. She goes from seeing her kids daily, every day, to having them split up all over the city. I wish there was some sort of redemptive note to the story. Margaret is still trying to find a job. She's still trying to manage taking care of her son while, while living in a homeless shelter. She's unable to get an apartment because she doesn't have an income, but, but she wants to work hard. She, she wants to get her kids back, but hardship came so unexpectedly. It crushed her. Now, not all hardships are to this level of intensity, and I hope that none of you have to walk through the pains that Margaret has had to experience. That said, I think all of us suffer from what I would call everyday hardships. Uh, This isn't to say that these hardships aren't difficult. They they absolutely are. And I'm not trying to devalue these hardships in any way. Uh, But that said, there are a couple hardships that are a bit more common to our experience as college students. Many of us suffer from hardships with loneliness, with breaking up with a girlfriend or boyfriend, not getting the job, homesickness. The list goes on. We struggle with with apathy, with with lust, with greed, with anxiety, with jealousy. One study showed that about 30% of college students suffer or or have suffered from depression. Another study showed that 18% of college students suffer from some sort of clinically significant alcohol-related problem. As I've been preparing for the MCAT, I ran across a stat that showed that 26% of Americans, that's that's one in four, suffer from some sort of psychological disorder, be it specific phobia or or social anxiety disorder, bulimia, anorexia, drug use. The list goes on and on and on. These are what I would call everyday hardships, not because they aren't hard, but because we see them every day. The effects of Genesis 3, the, the fall of perfect creation, still linger to this day. We, we are all aware of the devastation. Hardship is coming in each of our lives. What is your hardship? Do you know your hardship? Do you know that it, it's going to come? It, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but, but maybe next semester. If we know that hardship is coming, we must prepare. Uh, it's what we do in, t- do in these times of everyday hardship that matters. We, g- we each have particular ways in which we deal with the hard times. And, it, it, and when hard times come and, and come, they will. We must be aware of those ways in which we deal with them. I've been thinking a lot about the ways in which I struggle with everyday hardships. Who do I go to when the going gets tough? Do, do I go to anyone at all? The way I see it, there are three options. There are probably more, but these are the three that seem the most apparent to me. Uh, first, when everyday hardship comes, we can rely on ourselves. When I, when I think about relying on myself, I think back to the days when I played baseball in elementary school. Uh, they, they, back in those days, I was a baller. They used to call me Sammy Sosa. I like to think it's because uh, um, I was a home run hitter, not because I corked my bat and took steroids. But uh, anyway, um, I carried the team on my back. 
My coach used to always say, Sam, you know, there's no I in team. But my snarky response was, oh, well, coach, there's an I in win and I intend to win. Uh, <laughs> I relied on myself to win games. It, it was the way I functioned. I couldn't trust my teammates when the going got tough. And so I heaped the burden of winning on myself. It led to great pride and victory, but intense shame and defeat. There's this one game in particular where I went four for four with a grand slam. I know, I did great. But, <laughs> but I still lost. I remember just being crushed. On the ride home, my dad asked me why I was so upset, and I told him I felt responsible for the loss, that if only I had hit a bit farther or run a bit faster, that we would have been able to win. My, my, my dad reminded me that I had done my best, that I'd even done very well, and that I ought not to be ashamed. It's evident that my primary mode, and, and maybe for many of us our primary mode, is to rely on ourselves. Now, that's a pretty mundane example. Winning a baseball game in the fourth grade doesn't establish one's destiny, but it, it speaks to something a little bit deeper. The anthem of reliance on self is, is I can do this on my own. I don't need others to help me weather the storm. And that might be true when you, you do bad on an exam, but walking through depression or, or a breakup or loneliness alone can be, can be severely damaging. And it's hard to see self-reliance as a bad thing. And in many ways, relying on yourself can be a good thing. Our goals cannot be attained if we don't put in the effort. That said, I think self-reliance is too highly emphasized in our culture. It's more than emphasized, it's glorified. We hear about self-made women and men, how they pick themselves up by their bootstraps and achieve the American dream in living lives devoid of imperfection. But what we don't hear about is, is the luck and the privilege and the system of, of friends and family members and teachers and coaches that, that guided these people towards success. No one is self-made. Complete reliance on self is either, either an idealized myth or outright toxic. We can also rely on ourselves in times of hardship by getting pissed off and shutting down. I wasn't sure if I was going to say pissed off, but I did. <laughs> so fun. Uh, <laughs> uh, researcher and writer Brene Brown talks about converting vulnerability and fear into shame and aggression uh, in her book, Daring Greatly. She says that some of us respond uh, when we feel the rush of inadequacy and smallness by, by, by getting angry or by completely turning off. This is not the response that leads to, to restoration. This is the response that leads to, to greater pain and, and greater frustration. Why do we turn to ourselves in times of hardship? Uh, maybe it's because we think it'll be more comfortable. We don't have to let other people see our inadequacies. We don't have to let other people see our vulnerabilities, our, our insufficiencies. We don't have to let other people see how, how truly messed up we can be. Privacy affords a degree of comfort. That said, when we rely on ourselves or, or shut down, we inadequately measure our ability to handle all hardships that come our way. We are insufficient to handle our hardships alone. If we only rely on our own power, we, we harbor an inflated view of self, thinking that we are the saviors of our own story. The, the small comfort we get from keeping our images pales in comparison to the damage we're wreaking in our own shut-off lives. 
We're made for relationships. We're made for friends. Let's, let's go ahead and hop into the word. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. James makes it, makes it so clear. The Christian is led into restoration through relationship. Scripture does not call us to self-reliance. James wants us to press into others that point us back towards the Lord. Through confession and through prayer, we can enter into closer communion with, with both our friends and with the God of the universe. So, we, we recognize that Scripture calls us into relationships. What do those relationships look like? Who are they with? The second way we confront everyday hardship is by running to our acquaintances and I know what you're going to say. Sam, why would I run to my acquaintances in times of hardship? Yeah, that's a valid question. You see, I would argue that we don't always know that we're running to our acquaintances in times of hardship until it's too late. So what does it mean for someone to be an acquaintance? As I was preparing for this sermon, I asked a lot of you what it means for someone to be an acquaintance, and I got a whole slew of answers. Some of you said that Acquaintances know you, but, but don't know your life. Others said that, that they're a familiar face, but you, you wouldn't hang out with them outside of social settings. Still others said that acquaintances are, are people you interact with, uh, maybe even on a daily basis, but you don't invest in. The book of Proverbs knows about acquaintances, and it actually provides a really helpful definition. Proverbs 14.20 says, The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. This is an interesting view of what it means to be an acquaintance. Uh, The author of Proverbs makes it clear that the only distinction between uh, the two people is their socioeconomic status. One is poor, while the other is rich. Thus, it's it's safe to assume that the many friends surrounding the rich person are there uh, merely because of his riches, socioeconomic status. Proverbs makes it clear. Acquaintances are there for what you bring to the table, not for who you are. That makes acquaintances now sound nefarious, and they usually aren't, but it's important to understand their role when it comes to healing in times of hardship. Investing in relationships requires both vulnerability and trust. If we haven't spent the needed time to invest in a relationship with an acquaintance, how are they to adequately walk alongside us when the going gets tough? They'll be ill-equipped to walk alongside us in times of need, leaving us hurt and damaged. Ultimately, uh, an acquaintance is transient and thin. Are you an acquaintance? Uh, Are the people that you consider your friends really acquaintances? A third way we can confront everyday hardships is by uh, going into conversation and through relationship with our friends. Uh, so, so what does it mean to be a friend? Uh, a lot of times we can get the, confused as to where the line between acquaintance and friend exists, so I think we should dive into what biblical friendship looks like. I think it'll make it a bit more clear. Again, I asked a bunch of you what it means for someone to be a good friend, and again, I got a variety of answers. They said that friends know your goals and dreams. They, they know what you're scared of and, and what you're going through. I heard that friends are influencers and people that you choose to share in your life experiences. 
I heard a lot of good things, but, but as I was talking with people, uh, I noticed that the bar for a friendship isn't, isn't particularly high. Being, being a friend isn't that hard. Being a friend is remembering birthdays. It's, it's keeping up with their exam schedule. It's asking how their week is going. According to these definitions, being a friend doesn't require much on my part. So, so I guess the natural question you may be asking is, Sam, what are the biblical characteristics of Proverbs? And I, I've seen three. Uh, according to the book of Proverbs, biblical friendship is characterized by uh, constancy, by honesty, and by wise counsel. Friends are constant, friends are honest, and friends counsel. So to start, friends are constant. Uh, Proverbs 17, 17 says, a friend loves at all times, but a brother is born for adversity. A friend is someone that doesn't shy away when things get ugly. A friend sees the ugliness and sticks through it with you. They recognize your failings, your tendencies to run from the Lord, and they don't merely tolerate it. They love you in it. The author of Proverbs guides us to recognize ourselves as sisters and brothers, women and men born for adversity for one another. Our calling is for that time. You know, this makes me think of of the vows of a marriage ceremony. Uh, For better, for worse, for for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. The the vows in a marriage ceremony acknowledge the impending hard times. So, So how are the married to combat the coming difficulties? by fighting it with togetherness. As friends, they stick to one another, walking alongside each other in the coming adversity. That said, they're also to walk with each other in times of good, in times of joy. This isn't to say that a friend is only to be constant in times of great need. A friend is constant both in times of of mourning and joy. Proverbs 18.24 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. You see, it's not the quantity of your relationships, but the depth, the quality. You're not going to have many friends that stick closer than a brother because it costs a lot for someone to do that. True constancy is unwavering and time-consuming. We only have a limited capacity to be the type of friends we want to be. This means that if we want to be a faithful friend, we we can't be a mile wide, but just an inch deep. So a friend is constant. Next, we we see a friend is honest. Uh, Of the three characteristics of friendship, this is the hardest for me, and and maybe for a lot of you. Being honest with a friend can lead to some very uncomfortable situations. Proverbs 27, 5 through 6 lays it out pretty clearly. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. What does that even mean? Well, let's start with open rebuke. Uh, Open rebuke is hard. (laughs) It's uncomfortable. Uh, I've done it a fair share of times, and often it's messy and imperfect. And and I myself have been openly rebuked more times than I can count. So so, uh, I think that when we see something in someone else's life, we... Or that's, that's wrong or off, we just hope it'll go away, that it'll fix itself. We, we say, oh, if it goes on just a bit longer, then I'll say something. Then I'll intervene. Ultimately, we continue to push back the line. 
and we allow sin to corrode the hearts of our friends. Another thing that makes me hesitate before openly rebuking someone is, is the fear that I'm not a worthy messenger. Uh, oftentimes the things I talk about with others are, are things that I myself have struggled or are currently are struggling with. Who, who am I to call someone out when I myself struggle with those same things? Despite this fear, it's, it's important to remember that perfection is not a prerequisite for rebuke. It's not. Why would, Jesus, why would the Lord Jesus command us to have these conversations if, if he required perfection? Jesus calls us in Matthew 7 to, to take the log out of your own eye, that, and then when you see clearly, take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus isn't telling us that we, we have to become perfect before we can begin to work the, the work to perfect the sin of others. So what does he mean? He's telling us that to recognize our sins before we waltz into someone else's life and just list off their sins to them. He's giving us a motivation check. It's in the recognizing of our own faults and our own sinfulness that we can humbly and empathetically walk into gentle and honest conversation with our friends as friends equal in brokenness. A faithful wounding goes hand in hand with open rebuke. Uh, honesty can be wounding, but, but wounds can heal if done correctly. Uh, let's think of the, the skilled hand of a surgeon. Uh, a surgeon wounds you. There's no way around it. Uh, take, for example, open heart surgery. In open heart surgery, sometimes parts or the whole sternum has to just be cut, leaving the vulnerable flesh exposed. This is wounding. But the surgeon, through, through careful and gentle and wise maneuvering, is, is able to cut away what is malignant, what is deadening, what is unwanted, and is able to stitch together the good. The surgeon wounds to heal. In the same way as we faithfully wound our friends, let's not just stab and run. That'll lead to disconnect and to damage and to anger between friends, but but enter into conversation. Slowly cut away through your questions and your careful prodding. Allow others to come to their own conclusions. One last thing. This, this usually needs to be a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Uh, Matthew 18 says, if, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. We're made to resolve conflict through one-on-one -on -one conversation. It leads to greater sincerity, a fuller ability to empathize, and a whole lot more gentleness. Anyone can shoot off a passive-aggressive text. I know I've done it myself. But not everyone can enter into conversation. It requires courage and genuine love for the other. Let's try practicing the golden rule on this one. Wouldn't we want this to be a private conversation? So, so we've seen that friends are both constant and honest. Uh, lastly, we also see that friends counsel. Proverbs 27.9 says, Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Friends counsel. So, so what does this counsel look like? Well, I think it might be a combination of the previous two. A, a friend cannot effectively counsel if they're not present, if they're not constant. A friend cannot effectively counsel if they're not honest. But providing sweet counsel is, is more than just showing up and, and being honest. 
Counsel can also look like, like silence. Words aren't always required. Proverbs 13, 13 says, whoever guards his, his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Sometimes when our friends are, are going through hardship, they, they don't need to hear a, a, a list of six steps that'll get them out of all their hardship and it'll, it'll just dissolve away. And I know this is definitely my primary mode. The, the pre-doctor in me just wants to fix everything right away and, and everything is just a problem waiting to be solved. If I just say the right things, make a couple of wise quips, this person will be fine. Their hardship will dissolve away right in front of me. How wrong could I be? Provide an ear to listen, a shoulder to cry on, give your time, your presence. It may not fix things, it may not realign the universe, but, but it shows that you care, that you love. So we've seen that Proverbs calls us as friends to be, to be constant, to be honest, and to provide counsel. So, so, so why be a good friend? Two reasons. First, friendship and community are the means by which the body of Christ is unified. And it's only in our unification that we can be a blessing to the world. Second, biblical friendships uh, with unbelievers can act as a powerful testimony to the reality of God's love. This gives unbelievers a real and tangible way in which they can connect the love that you show them to the, to the loving Father. Being good friends with, with unbelievers can be, a, can be used by God in huge ways. Ultimately, a friend is, is someone that sticks around even in the mess, providing counsel through honest conversations, pushing you towards Christ, the founder and perfecter of your faith. When we think of the Christian life, do we think of friendship? Uh, do we think of community? Or do we, do we think of theology? of social justice, of worship. Aren't there more important things to care about than friendship? I know that this is my tendency. Why worry about friendship? We can explore vast theological concepts like predestination or, or theories on creation. Why should we care about friendship? Well, we should care about friendship because friendship founded in biblical principles helps us through these everyday hardships. It allows us to engage in those other facets of life. What does our theology get us in the midst of turmoil? Does our passion for social justice uh, help us walk through the pains of life? In the valley of the shadow of death, uh, we must walk alongside our brothers and sisters knitted with us through mundane experiences for the purpose of glorifying and magnifying the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't hear what I'm not saying. Uh, theology and social justice are really, really good things. You know, these are passions shaped and molded by God and his desire for, for biblical knowledge and care for the destitute. We should all seek to, to restore God's creation and, and seek biblical wisdom. That, that said, if we are to pursue theology alone or, or social justice alone, we'll become worn out, cut off, and in need. Only in the throes of relationships can these passions be built up in, in order to flourish. These passions can be shaped in and through relationships. Proverbs 27, 17 says, uh, iron sharpens iron as, as one man sharpens another. 
It is through the healthy clashing of personalities and views that, that we're able to strengthen our weapons to, to combat the coming hardship. More than likely, your beliefs aren't going to align perfectly with another person's, uh, economically, uh, philosophically, uh, personally, and, and politically. We're, we're going to have disagreements. But through conversation with friends, we're, we're able to cut away what's deadening and weak and expose the strength lying underneath. We're able to, th- through communication, rebut each other's misconceptions and false arguments and point each other towards Jesus, the, the source of all truth. Through friendship, we're able to enter into relationships that, that help us see ourselves more clearly in light of who God designed us to be. Uh, we see in Ecclesiastes 4 how powerful the bonds of friendship can be. It says, uh, for two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Friendship is value in that friends are stronger together. Friends bound in relationship are a formidable force against the coming hardship. Do you value your friends? This was a really convicting uh, topic for me. Over, over the last couple of weeks, I've been diving headfirst into MCAT study and, and preparing for this talk, and it's really consumed my life in a large way. Even a couple of weeks ago here at Veritas, a friend of mine came up to me and said, Sam, where have you been? I, I haven't seen you in forever. Here I am trying to show everyone what it means to be a friend, and, and I can't manage to do this myself. I explained how I've been a bit busy, and I, I changed the subject, but, but it stuck with me. Sure, th- there are going to be times where you're busier than others, and, and this is one of those times for me. I'm going to continue to try to pursue the goal of getting a good MCAT score. I'm going to continue to try to pursue what I believe is the Lord's plan in my life of becoming a doctor. But in that moment, I realized that I was working at the, at the expense of my relationships. I was working all while my relationships were, were slowly deadening. How can my friendships flourish if I'm unable to invest? I came to a sobering conclusion. I can't be a faithful friend. Studying friendship racked me with guilt. Friendship requires so much more than what we're able to give. It requires so much more than we're capable. Friendship, friendship is impossible to do alone. How are we to be constant and honest and to provide counsel on our own? We're not. Simply put, we're unable to do these things in our power. Maybe for a short while, maybe for a little bit, but, but friendships that last are rooted in the power of Jesus Christ. How can we comfort our friends? Second Corinthians 1, 3 through 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we might be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Only because the Father comforts us are we able to comfort our friends in times of affliction. 
How are we to provide wise counsel? Uh, James 1, 5 through 6 says, if, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. Only because the Father gives his wisdom generously to all who ask are, are we able to provide wise counsel to our friends. All we have to do is ask. How can we love? First uh, John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. Only because our Father loved us and still loves us are we able to love our friends. It's only by his hand. It's only by his work. As the music team comes back up, I just remind us, I just want to remind us of what's at stake. Hard times are coming. These, these hardships can, can rock the very foundation of our beings, rattle the walls of our soul, and, and make the roofs of our lives collapse in on us. It can be damaging. It can be crushing. But, but remember the words of Ecclesiastes. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Our friends, not acquaintances, but our friends, uh, act as a bulwark against the coming tide of hardship. A friend sticks with us through the mess. A friend is honest, even to the point of wounding, if it means greater communion with our Lord. A friend provides wise counsel. Do you want friends like that? Do you, do you want to be that type of friend to someone else? Because Jesus is that friend to us. Let's believe that. Amen. Amen.